Let's talk about a mountain territory that people are killing each other over. It's called Nagorno-Karabakh. The war in Nagorno-Karabakh was carnage. Six weeks in which a deluge of fire and steel fell on the breakaway region and its Armenian forces. Thousands of people were killed in fighting over the region before a peace agreement in November saw Armenia cede large amounts of territory to Azerbaijan. Well, Azerbaijan says its troops have begun entering the areas surrounding the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh, which were once home to Armenian separatists. That was before a Russian-brokered peace deal ended weeks of bloody fighting. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of What in the World? International Relations Explained, which is a brand new political-themed podcast which aims to bridge the gap between long and inaccessible academic explanations and then the often short and too simple explanations of current affairs that we see in the news. Uh, I'm Sam, your host, and for those of you who are new to the podcast, um, here's a little bit about me. Uh, I hold an undergraduate degree in international relations and a master's in international security, and I'm extremely passionate about international relations, and I want everyone else to be as well. And that's why I created this podcast, to help explain international events, historical crises, and politics in an easy-to-listen-to, around 30 minutes, and, and an accessible podcast. I've recorded two previous episodes um, that have been well-received, and the very first episode was looking at US foreign policy under Joe Biden, and the second episode, uh, I discussed the ramifications for the UK since it's left the European Union. Um, of course, in my humble opinion, they're great listens, um, so if you haven't heard them yet, uh, why not go back and take a listen to the other episodes after you listen to this uh, podcast episode. But for today, we're going to talk about what is often an unknown conflict, one that is very old, but whilst it may be old, has been extremely deadly in recent months, and that is the Nagano-Karabakh conflict. Now, the latter part of 2020 was filled with news broadcasts from this breakaway region in the Caucasus, but what I noticed is that the news often failed to give an even basic understanding of the conflict and the wider, uh, the wider picture with the involvement of both Turkey and Russia. And I mention this conflict now because a Russian-brokered peace deal is over two months old and seems to be holding quite well. And we really cannot let this bloody and deadly conflict go unanalyzed and relegated back to the history books. The Nagano-Karabakh conflict is hugely important for the tale of great power politics, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Now, I do suspect that many of you may not um, have even heard of Nagano-Karabakh before this current eruption, or may still not know really where it is. And many would probably even struggle to locate this little region on a map. Um, I know I would have before I even heard of this, this conflict. Um, Nagorno-Karabakh is located in the Caucasus, which is a highly mountainous region, and that's in between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. The largest country in this region is Russia, and is also shared by Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. Now, this conflict is between Armenia and Azerbaijan, who share a border together, but also share a similar history of Russian domination. Now, Nagorno-Karabakh is a disputed territory located within Azerbaijan. It has a high Armenian population, and to many in this little breakaway region, they would consider themselves to be part of 
uh, excuse my pronunciation here, the Republic of Artsakh. This republic, however, is very closely aligned with Armenia and relies heavily on Armenian support, and in some ways is a de facto state of Armenia. Now, this is where the conflict starts to make sense. You have a region within Azerbaijan who considers itself Armenian or even its own little state. Now, this is just part of the ingredients that made this conflict boil over. The historical co context for this conflict is also rather large, but we're only going to look at the contemporary history because that is really what makes sense in the current ongoing dispute. But in short, the region has been dominated by the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, and this makes it a very culturally diverse area. There has been a widespread of Armenians, and the Armenian population would eventually come to populate the Nagorno-Karabakh region. And after the disillusionment of the Ottoman Empire, the Azerbaijanis laid claim to this Armenian populated area. Then came about the Russian Empire, who laid claim to all of it. The conflict was then ignited until the Soviets came and laid claim to all of it as well. Armenian Azerbaijan were Soviet republics under the Soviet Union, which at times meant the conflict was very much hidden under the surface. And it wasn't until the collapse of the Soviet Union that the conflict really ignited again, and it's the conflict that we see today. Now, as the Soviet Union was in its last moments, many of those republics began to declare independence, and Armenia and Azerbaijan were very quick to do this. And with the death of the Soviet Union, which was at least for all its faults and, and issues, was a stabilising force in the region, the death unravelled centuries of bottled up ethnic conflict. Both Armenia and Azerbaijan set up their claims to the Nagorno-Karabakh region, who remember was still located within the territory of Azerbaijan and it shared no border with Armenia, and this fact will be important in a second. The breakaway region's government conducted a referendum which supported unifying with Armenia. Now, at this point, absolute chaos erupted. The newly independent countries, Armenia and Azerbaijan, the lack of the Soviet Union, and the breakaway region declare its independence, was then stripped away of its power by Azerbaijan, was all led to this hodgepodge of just absolute conflict, chaos and political turmoil. And this all came to a head in the winter of 1992. And this saw some of the deadliest fighting. But it wasn't until 1994 that a successful peace agreement was reached after many, many failed attempts to bring about some sort of humanitarian peace to this very bloody conflict. Now, the outcome of this was, uh, however, heavily tilted into the Armenians' favour. Because by the end of the war in 1994, the Armenians were in full control of most of the enclave and also held and currently control approximately 9% of Azerbaijan's territory outside of this enclave. Many Azerbaijanis were expelled from the region, leading to claims that ethnic cleansing was being conducted by Armenians. But the same was also happening with Armenians and Azerbaijan. So there were some deep and troubling humanitarian issues in this conflict. It also saw the death of up to 16,000 civilians and many thousands of military troops on both sides. So it really was a very bloody war indeed. Now, 
Although a peace was reached in 1994, some small border clashes still continued, with almost a yearly clash of some description between 2008 and the eruption of the full-scale war in 2020. But the aftermath of the 1994 agreement meant that Armenia held Azerbaijani territory and it had fulfilled its claim on the Nagano-Karabakh region. Both sides now began to entrench along the new borders. Soldiers occupied the borders. Heavy weaponry began to be stationed there in preparation for other conflicts. So both sides kind of knew that this was not an end to the conflict by any stretch of the imagination. Now we get to around today. We get to September 2020. Both sides had seen some of some of the deadliest border skirmishes uh, in recent years. So we knew that both sides had not forgotten the first Nagorno-Karabakh war of the late of the early and late 1990s. And on the 27th of September 2020, heavy fighting began to erupt, which led to Armenia mobilizing its forces to what it described to repel the Azerbaijani offensive. Now, many would wonder why Azerbaijan, the force that lost to Armenia, would even dare risk an offensive in a highly militarized area. The evidence is pretty clear why, and it actually is hugely informative of the whole geostrategic importance of this little tiny area. Now, if we look at Azerbaijani military spending, we start to see some clues as to why they would actually conduct uh, what the Armenians described as an offensive. From 2008 to 2019, Azerbaijan spent $24 billion on its military, $16 billion more than Armenia, and it set out, using propaganda methods, its political claims to the Nagorno-Karabakh region. Azerbaijan was also highly successful in diversifying its arms imports. Armenia mainly bought its arms and weaponry from Russia, as it gets a discount for being a member of the Russia-led Collective Security Treaty Organization. And whilst Azerbaijan does buy from Russia, its money from its gas and oil revenues stretches further and is able to buy even a higher-tech weaponry from the likes of Turkey and Israel. And in 2016, President Ilham Aliyev, uh, the president of Azerbaijan, claimed that his country had purchased $4.85 billion in Israeli armaments. And Azerbaijan has been able to upgrade its military and get prepared for this conflict for at least a decade, thanks to its revenue from its petrochemical industry. And we will, of course, also get to this idea of foreign help in a, in a bit, which is also another reason as to why Azerbaijan felt prepared to retake this breakaway region. The fighting lasted for a while, and in this podcast, we're not really going to get into the detail uh, of the daily troop movements, of what town was taken on this day, and, and the shelling, and the number of this, and a number of that, but rather the significance of the conflict as a whole. Now, the conflict was met with widespread international condemnation, ranging from the United Nations, the European Union, the Minsk Group, which was a group formulated by France, Russia, and the US, uh, and they, the, this group was able to broker deals in the very first uh, Nagorno-Karabakh uh, conflict, but this time, many ceasefires failed to stem this conflict and the humanitarian disaster which was unfolding. The war saw the use of technologically advanced weaponry, which was what was alluded to a minute ago with the purchase of new weapons from Turkey and Israel. And it also saw the use of landmines, 
cluster bombs and white phosphorus, which are prohibited in some international treaties. And although Armenia and Azerbaijan haven't signed many of these treaties, their use is, is highly significant and shows the catastrophic nature of this war and the deadliness of this war on civilian populations. Now, Azerbaijan was able to successfully push back Armenian forces. And in many areas, it was able to inflict significant and unsustainable casualties on both military and, unfortunately, civilian populations. The conflict progressed and it was on the 9th of November that a ceasefire was finally agreed to and this would be the lasting ceasefire that we see today. Now this agreement was brokered by Russia and under the terms of the deal, both belligerent parties were to exchange prisoners of war, the bodies of the fallen and Armenian forces were to withdraw from Armenian occupied territory surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh by the 1st of December 2020 and a peacekeeping force provided by Russia would be stationed in Nagorno-Karabakh to oversee humanitarian supplies. There is one clear loser from this conflict, and it's not who you think, and that is civilians. Many civilians have been killed in this conflict or have been dis uh, displaced. A humanitarian disaster has unfolded, which is a stain on both sides of the conflict. I'm not laying blame to one side or the other side, but both have a responsibility for the displacement of civilians and the death of civilians. It is clear at some points both sides targeted civilians to help try and achieve victory. And although the president of Azerbaijan has said that his forces will not expel any ethnic Armenians in the region, there is a huge fear amongst the international community that it will still occur as retaliation for what the Armenians did in the first war. And already, many ethnic Armenians have already fled and left behind many of their worldly possessions to escape the conflict and what they see as an impending ethnic cleansing by the Azerbaijanis. While civilians are the clear loser, of course Armenia is also a loser in this conflict. They were defeated by a better equipped military and have now lost a huge percentage of what they gained in 1994. The government's reputation is also in tatters. There were riots on the streets of the Armenian capital for many days after the ceasefire was agreed to, with some managing actually to storm government buildings. Now, this psychological sense of defeat is not something that will be able to disappear very soon, and is something that will live on in the minds of many Armenians. And this is hugely dangerous, because this conflict is much to do about history and a sense of defeat than it is to do about the actual territory involved. Now, one would also think, well, of course, Azerbaijan is the clear winner of this conflict. It won. It has now regained much of its lost territory and has shown to be a winner. But in my opinion, I don't actually think Azerbaijan is the winner of this conflict. Now, why do I say this? And, well, I mentioned in my last podcast uh, about the importance of appearances on the international stage. Azerbaijan, according to many experts and some of those in the international community, started this war as an offensive war. Now, that will not go down well, and it, in a way, has threatened the reputation of Azerbaijan. It cannot maintain the peace and is not a responsible peacekeeper, something that is actually hugely important to this world order. And, of course, this reputation was already in tatters amongst those in the Western 
the western part of the world. Um, because Azerbaijan is an authoritarian dictatorship with rife cronyism, of which many of the president's family and friends own stakes in public companies. Now, the 2020 Freedom House report describes Azerbaijan as an authoritarian regime where corruption is rampant and the formal political opposition parties and civil society have been weakened by years of persecution. So, in the grand scheme of things, Azerbaijan really hasn't done well at all. The real winners of this conflict are both Turkey and Russia, but for differing reasons, and we'll explore now. Let's discuss Turkey first, and why Why would Turkey get involved in a conflict like this? This is crucial, and this is key. Turkey and Azerbaijan share a rich cultural history. When each talk of each other, they often refer to themselves as one nation, two states, to symbolise really how close they are. The Ottoman Empire helped Azerbaijan gain independence from the Russian Empire, and was one of the first nations to recognise its independence. So there is this real deep cultural symmetry between the two here. Also, the rise of Turkish nationalist movements, especially proposed by the current president Erdogan, has only continued to cement this shared cultural identity. And it's also not just the rise of Turkish nationalism that has bound these two countries together. It is the rise of Turkey as a big and growing power in the region. And, like with all big and growing powers who have nationalism at their core, they require what they see as a sphere of influence, an area around its country which they dominate, and anything that happens within it is of immediate concern to their interests and their security. Turkey has grown both in economic and military terms, and it sees the Caucasus as the part of its new and growing sphere of influence. And we can see evidence for this in developments of Turkish foreign policy. Turkey has intervened in the Syrian civil war, where it has, in de facto terms, annexed part of Syria to, to help foster greater involvement in the Middle East. Turkish troops and military support have also been used in Libya, where they too have managed to turn the tide of the conflict for geostrategic purposes. The outcome of the successes of the Azerbaijani offensive is that the two countries can now share a continuous border, and that's hugely important, as the flow of natural resources are now uninterrupted, and this will, could and should help boost the Turkish economy. Turkey has also now gained a strong foothold in the Caucasus, and it is pretty clear that they are making significant inroads uh, in this region. And this is why it makes them one of the clear winners of the conflict. They have managed to help what they see as a cultural brother secure victory in a long ethnic war, where, without having to commit fully to the Azerbaijani war effort. But this marks a total change in Turkish foreign policy in the region, and it signals quite a big shift in Turkish policy. Um, Thomas Dewal, an expert uh, in the region and author of The Black Garden, Armenian Azerbaijan Through Peace and War, has said this. Turkey has always offered political support to Azerbaijan, but has also said the conflict must be resolved peacefully. There's been a geopolitical equilibrium where no side has really backed one side or the other. Now suddenly, one of the major regional actors is backing Azerbaijan. 
The involvement concretely by Turkey has hugely complicated the whole conflict and really does threaten regional stability more than it already was threatened. This is largely down to the interests of one other major power in the region, and I think we all know who this is, Russia. Russia for centuries, going from the Russian Empire to the Soviet Union to now modern-day Russia, has always had an interest in the Caucasus due to its natural resources and its history of domination. The Caucasus are clearly in Russia's sphere of influence, and now the growth of Turkish, Turkish interests are threatening this, and it, it's extremely unclear how much Russia will tolerate this. Turkey's growing involvement in the South Caucasus through Azerbaijan is a fact that which Russia does not relish. Russian and Turkish interests clash here more than anywhere, said Dmitry Trenin, head of the Carnegie Moscow Centre think tank, and he added, Putin and Erdogan have never been true allies and never will. Russia's interests in the regions are pretty clear. Armenia is a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, uh, which I think I mentioned previously, and that's something similar to NATO, but to the same extent, not really NATO. But picture it as a Russian-led NATO. And whilst Russia has a treaty alliance with Armenia, it also has a strong relationship with Azerbaijan. And it continues to have a strong relationship with Azerbaijan and Armenia after this war. And that is why I truly think that Russia is the clear winner of this war. The Russians have truly won this war, and that is really thanks to their ceasefire agreement that they have managed to broker between Armenia and Azerbaijan. The deal, which is rather short, it states that Azerbaijan can keep the territory that it has won due to the conflict, and Armenia must return the former Azerbaijani land it won in 1994. Also, the Nagano-Karabakh region will see the deployment of over 2,000 Russian, what they call, peacekeepers to oversee the distribution of humanitarian supplies and to protect the civilian population. This peace accord stipulates the, that Russian peacekeeping missions will last five years with an automatic renewal after that unless one of the party parties withdraws consent. Now, Russia was reluctant to get fully involved in this conflict, but has successfully been able to steer the direction of this conflict in its favour. And although Armenia is in the CSTO, Russia stated that the Nagorno-Karabakh region did not fall under its remit. However, Russia would defend the territory of Armenia proper. Thus, this limited the conflict to only the breakaway region. And the failure of any other international organisation to bring about peace in the region only further cements the idea that Russia is able to to dominate the region and is the only dominant actor in the area that can secure longer lasting peace. What is also interesting here is the involvement of Turkey. Whilst complicating the, uh, the matter and is not exactly what Russia would need, it does offer potential benefits to Russia. The government of Armenia, which was elected in 2018 by what Russia saw as a colour revolution backed by Western powers, it saw the election of a more pro-Western president. Therefore, 
the culmination of the loss of land, the involvement of Turkey, a country which Armenia hates and has no diplomatic relationship with, does offer opportunities for the Russian government. It offers opportunities for uh, this pro-Western government to fall and a more pro-Russian government to rise, or for the, more, for the current Armenian government to seek closer relations with Russia. A more pro-Russian Armenia could be more susceptible to new arrangements in the Nagorno-Karabakh region, of which Russia can frame and suit its needs. Of course, this is all predictions from my behalf, and none of this is really set in stone. We saw that the 1994 peace agreement didn't stop the conflict. No comprehensive agreement was reached. And 20 years later, under 20 years later, we saw the resurgence of this ethnic conflict. And even if this is the case, and this ceasefire doesn't last uh, as long as the 1994 one does, we can see that Russia may be forced to take drastic action in Armenia and actually seek to change governments or even start to push claims on the Armenian government to pressurise them to just fully accept the loss of Nagorno-Karabakh. Armenia cannot afford to isolate itself from Russia. Armenia needs Russian money, it needs its arms and of course it needs its support with an increasingly assertive Turkey. So in a way I do see this conflict dying down because the presence of Russian peacekeepers have frozen this conflict and Russia is the master of frozen conflicts. Just look at the look at the Ukraine, look at Georgia, look at Moldova. Russia freezes these conflicts and ensures that it has a military presence in these regions through its so-called peacekeepers. This is where Russia keeps control on its spheres of influence. And that is why I think Russia is the true winner of this conflict for the time being. Whilst Turkey has been able to play a significant part in this conflict and helped achieve Azerbaijani victory, and its influence is now growing, Russia still dominates the region. And whether Russia will accept this Turkish attempt at influence in what is Russia's sphere of influence remains to be seen. But what I truly do hope is that we see a lasting peace in this region where civilians are protected and those who have been displaced are able to return to their homes. Whilst the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict may be far away for some of you, and while some of you may never have even heard of it, its effects are huge and it remains a destabilised place which, have two, which has two great powers seeking to increase their influence for different reasons. And this, in global politics, is never a good mix. Well, thank you for listening to my third podcast episode. I really do hope you have enjoyed this one and found it really informative and just an easy to listen to podcast. I hope that you will go back and check my previous episodes. And next week, uh, I'm going to be discussing an issue which has been described as one of the most likely disputes to erupt into World War III. And that is the Chinese claims on the South China Sea. We will look at what these claims are, what China is doing in this region, which is hugely important, and why this is a potential flashpoint between China and the United States. So, thank you once again for listening, and please do tune in next week. Thank you, and goodbye.